0: Welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today, returning to the show, is Dr. Jen Souders. She was an anesthesiologist at the University of Washington for 20 years and then entered clinical practice as a pain specialist. She currently serves in a coaching capacity with chronic pain patients in Dr. Hanscom's weekly group sessions. In addition, she is the medical director for the Diet Doc LLC and a forensic consultant. Welcome.
2: Hi, Welcome. thanks, Tom. Hi, hi, Jen. Thanks for coming back on the show. Here, um, Jen is a um, physician who she and I had become good friends over this last year, and we met sort of through common interests. But she's a trained anesthesiologist. She practiced that for many years. She practiced chronic pain work for many years. She dealt with addiction issues. And she quit her clinical clinical practice to care for her mother. And she's now doing consulting, but has a very strong interest in coaching. She's been very active in our weekly, twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays at noon. We have a roundtable discussion virtual of about 20 to 40 people that Jen's been a major part of and it's been a wonderful group and really it's been delightful having Jen on board. She's been one of the stalwarts. She also has a strong coaching background herself. So lots of people ask her questions. So um, Jen, welcome to the show and I'm very happy to have you back.
0: Thanks, David. Hey, would you mind if I just made a quick little comment? Sure. When, when you said I was involved in addiction issues, the first thing you came across was like, oh yeah, man, I've been in treatment. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
2: I didn't really mean that. So she assessed people with chronic pain, to decide when they were addicted, and then referred them on to the appropriate resources. Is that a better statement? Uh,
0: yes, I used addiction medicine training. I'm board certified in addiction medicine. And, and it actually became a really fundamental part of, of you know, gatekeeping for patients prescribed opioids. But really, it, it helped to direct my philosophical approach to patients more than I realized it would before I started that training, so but I haven't I haven't been a patient myself in an Sorry, addiction.
2: Didn't did not get that. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So I guess I would like to start. We have some things we want to talk about, but I guess one thing I went I did not cover in the first podcast is that there's always this clinician's dilemma of deciding whether a person in chronic pain has an addiction problem. Can you briefly describe from your perspective? I know it's not an easy answer by any means, but. Somebody has chronic pain; they require narcotics to be functional, and then at some point it tips over into an addiction issue. How do you tell that?
0: Well, it's it's behavioral. In other words, you know, everybody who's maintained on opioids or narcotics for chronic pain develops physical dependence. Right. So they have severe symptoms if those those medications are abruptly cut off and not appropriately tapered. That's one thing. But when we look actually at addictive behaviors, you know, there's, I mean, the, there's, uh, there's, ca- there's categories and criteria for determining the areas of life that are affected. So it's, it's typically not just physical withdrawal, physical dependent symptoms alone. There have to be behavioral problems. So an, an inordinate amount of time is spent seeking or thinking about or acting towards getting medications. Um, and a lot of things will, will negatively happen in terms of loss of good family relationships, inability to follow through on commitments in life, um, consequences. So when we wanna look at, at for instances, so the person who um, spends a lot of time seeking opioids in addition to their prescribed opioids, they'll go to the ER or they'll go to the dentist or the, you know they've, they've lost control and the body is driving them and the brain is driving them. There there are changes in the brain uh, that drive the behavioral uh, responses and the neurochemical responses to the substance. And so it drives people to seek more and they're not able to control it. And they often desperately wish they could and they'd like to cut down and they'd like to control it and their, their families would like them to, but they're not able to do it on their own because their brain has changed. And this sounds very familiar when we talk about chronic pain. Um, It is the neuroplasticity issue and the changes in neurochemistry and the connections within the brain and what is decided to be salient, meaning what, what do I think is important in my life? And so the drug takes on an outsized level of importance and job and family and interpersonal relationships and everything else starts, starts to take a back seat to that. And um, when we see patients in a pain practice, what we'll oftentimes see is, you know, medications at present in their toxicology tests that are not prescribed so that they may be, you know, running out early, early refills, um, multiple sources of, of medications, not adhering to one provider, one pharmacy, um, losing their prescriptions. Oh, I dropped all the pills down the garbage disposal by accident. Oh, my medications were stolen. Uh, My dog ate my homework kind of excuses, you know, so there's, there's a lot of things that we have to look out for.
2: So you mentioned something on the first podcast that caught my attention. It was called motivational interviewing in the biopsychosocial aspects of this disease in general, but also chronic pain. It takes a little bit of time for a physician to understand this patient, whether they're addicted or not. And if the physician doesn't make an accurate assessment, it really keeps a process going that's expensive to the patient, the family, and also to society. And so you call it motivational inter- interviewing. And I was impressed the way you approach that, but I'm assuming that's something that's a critical part of medicine that's not routinely present of actually listening and talking to the patient and actually deciding whether it really is a chronic pain issue or a chronic pain and an addiction issue.
0: Yes, and I would say that motivational interviewing is really more a part of the treatment side rather than the detection um, and evaluation assessment side of addiction medicine. Motivational interviewing is about behavioral change. And it's one of the methods, uh, it's, it's a style of talking with people. But you know, I mentioned coaching too, that the, the right. coaching framework uses motivational interviewing too. What we're really looking at in that framework is as I mentioned previously, self-determination theory. And there are three basic psychological needs in self-determination theory. They are autonomy, meaning self-control, self-direction. Competence, meaning that you, you develop the skills um, that, that you need to reach the goals you want. And then relatedness, which is connection. And so when we look at this, what do, let's, let's look at chronic pain patients, because that's how you, you're in my current interest. And this was my focus in the practice, was I started using the motivational interviewing tool as part of the coaching framework more. And I just sort of developed uh, better skills just with practice because it's like riding a bike or working out in the gym or anything. You, you just have to do it and flub it and, and learn from it and get better at it so that you improve. But what I, what I could say in seeing patients is, and I bet you'll agree with me, David, what do chronic pain patients often lack a sense of autonomy right Right. in their care they go to see you and you say i'm going to operate on your back the next thing that they that they lack is competence they're just given a you do this here's a pill here's a surgery they don't have to do anything they don't have to learn any skills they don't have to look inward to, to understand why they might want or need to learn new skills or what would be the appropriate ones for them, because every individual is completely unique. And then the relatedness. Chronic pain patients feel isolated. And you know, as well as I do, that typically the only people that bear the burden of their suffering is their families, those that they love and they're closest to um, and they they really lack for community and support and safety. They feel shunned within the medical system. They feel devalued. They are, quote unquote, those people. Right. Um, and it is an awful place to be in. And if you want to develop a system that's going to make chronic pain worse, that's it. We have it. <laughs> oh, boy.
2: Well, no, you're exactly right. I mean, couldn't, could not have said it more clearly, but Patients want to feel safe. The doctor-patient relationship means everything. It's a great starting point. <clears throat> if you don't have a good doctor-patient relationship, then the rest of it doesn't really matter very much. So people want to be heard. They want to be listened to. They want to know that their doctor understands who they are and what's going on. But there's a paper to Boston that shows that only 20% of physicians are comfortable treating or managing chronic pain. And less than 1% enjoy it. In chronic pain, get, patients get labeled pretty badly by their doctors. And if they knew the labels that were put on them, they would be just absolutely astonished and angry and frustrated. But, the, but in defense of the doctors, we aren't trained very well as to the nature of chronic pain. And you and I both know if you have the diagnosis correct, if you use the t- tools to teach people how to take care of themselves, and they do take care of themselves, they heal, they get better and they get better consistently with minimal resources, minimal injections, minimal procedures at all. And what we also both see is that not only do people get better, they thrive. They're actually better than they ever were in their entire life because pain's down, anxiety's down, mental pain is down. It just is a huge load off their backs. But the fun thing I want to say, because I actually do want to listen to you talk. (laughs) You know, I have a trouble keeping it down here sometimes, but no, there's a paper, just two papers that just stunned me is that they did research and show that the impact of chronic pain on a person's life is similar to having terminal cancer. And I think it's worse. And, And the paper actually said this, that it's actually worse because at least with terminal cancer, you know, the diagnosis you have to deal with it. It's either going to be a good or bad outcome, but at least you know there's an outcome with chronic pain. You don't know anything and lack of direction and no hope is devastating to a person's health both mentally and physically. So the impact is bad, but I wanna segue a bit on what what we talked about before. So doctors label chronic pain patients, they feel labeled, they respond. That's the opposite of, of what you want to calm people down, which is actually the solution for chronic pain. But we also talked about burnout, which is a big problem because you see lots of patients who are suffering badly. You don't necessarily believe them. You do the best you can do. So the doctors are motivated, but we're not trained correctly. So the doctor's frustrated, the patient's frustrated, and you get this cycle going that just doesn't stop. So the key here is actually if we could triple or quadruple the reimbursement for time spent with the patient, it would change the healthcare system like now. Because one of the biggest factors right now is that burnout is really high. Right. Physician burnout was what, about 50% right now? Maybe a little higher. Oh,
0: it was high before COVID. And and COVID is just going to decimate the 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 mental health and the physical resources of our healthcare providers.
2: Right. I mean, I'm I think both of us are concerned about complete collapse of our healthcare system. I mean, people start quitting, they get sick themselves, the patients keep piling on, and there's no end to this problem right now. It's a big problem. So I'd like, if you just comment for a minute on physician burnout, what are some of the causes right now of physician burnout and how does interacting with the chronic pain world make that worse?
0: Yeah, boy, that's a complicated question. Probably one that I can't address fully, but I'll tell you a few things that come to mind that I found to be um, most obvious to me. And I guess one of the things I'll start with was when I was a kid and I thought about going to medical school, um, you know, I had as my example, our family doctor, and that was a different time. Our family doctor had an office in his home. So he had an attached building and you went to see the doctor and there he was and his, his wife was at the front desk and his kids were in the backyard. And, and our family doctor always ran late, you know why? Because he would sit there and he'd talk to you and he got to know us. He knew what sports I was playing. You know, he knew what what choral music my mom was working on with her choir. You know, he knew about my, my brother's Boy Scout badges. And I mean, these were people back then that did house calls and And when you go to someone's home, I mean, we don't know what people live like anymore. We used to go into people's homes as doctors. And that's both good and bad. And you can say it's both a relief not to and a creepy thing. And, you know, there's there's no ideal good or bad about anything in life. However, what we did do was learn a lot. You know, when they say a picture's worth a thousand words, I mean, if you walked into someone's home, the impression that you got told you a lot about what that person's life was like and right. that right away gave you more information in about 30 seconds than you would probably get in a half an hour of you know of quietly exploring and 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 interviewing but suffice it to say we really don't get to know our patients and if you want to be a doctor you got to really like people. Right. I mean, that's why I think we go into it. We like people. We care about people. We want to help people. Right. I don't know anybody who was, well, okay, maybe that's wrong. Maybe there were one or two in my medical school class who went into it just for the money, but really no. Right. I mean, we're, we're altruistic caring people.
2: Part, part of it's the training, there's a study done, I put a course on in 2011 called A Course in Compassion, Empathy in the Face of Chronic Pain. And there's a study on medical students that showed that the compassion index, the Jefferson Compassion Index was significantly higher amongst people applying to medical school, but by the third year of medical school, it had dramatically plummeted. Yeah. And so we're hit hard with lots of material, we're criticized a lot, as you know, in medical school. And that doesn't even even include residency, which is even way worse than medical school. So we're beating pretty badly. And I'm sort of impressed that physicians as a group do have that motivation to do the right thing. They do like people. And that's where I get not a little upset, but really upset about how the business of medicine has somewhat captured us. Because I know very few few doctors who wouldn't relish talking to patients. Because my point being is that just treating symptoms is mind numbing repetition that becomes very tedious. And what makes medicine infinitely interesting is the patient, the person. So ironically, the burnout rate is well over 50%. The biggest factor probably preventing and actually solving burnout is actually talking to the patient. Then as you also well know that when you're burned out, it's pretty hard to be effective actually reaching out to that particular patient. And so it's, it's sort of a catch 22 here. So I'd like to finish here with just going into sort of your coaching approach to treating chronic disease, some of your thoughts on that.
0: Sure. Um, I think it's actually a really rewarding relationship. And I have a bias because like I said, I, I was an athlete and I was coached um, for many years and and I enjoyed coaching others too. And as an athlete being coached, it takes you out of the medicine framework and into the more humanistic framework here's a person who understands things about what I'm trying to do but then then who has to understand me and what makes me different than the other athletes on my team and what motivates me and what my physical limitations are and what my behavioral and physical strengths are so they have to form a relationship with you that's individual and unique. They have to tailor your approach to your sport around your strengths. And the best coaches do that. They are able to take a group of people or a team and move them together while at the same time addressing each individual's needs. And so when when I was in medicine and, and I started getting more interested in the non-procedural side of chronic pain, where I actually became more interested in working with people about the experience of chronic pain. I think it was because of this coaching approach. You know, people, to justify their opioids, they have to show functional improvement, right? Right. And that's, that's a requirement. Well, I had to figure out how do I assess functional improvement? And there's where my approach started to really develop. I developed my own coaching program that allowed me to actually explore the lives and the lifestyles of these people. I mean, I would find that everyone was so different, but for instance, I could have a single mom struggling to raise two teenage kids and the most important thing in her life was being able to pay the bills and keep the food on the table. And that was it. And to take care of her kids, make sure they got to school and got their homework done and that they ate and they had a roof over their heads. You know, and if she could continue to do that effectively then that was her most important reason for being. And so we had to look, you had to look for functional improvement in that domain, because that's what's important to her. If, I, if I'm trying to get her to stick with an exercise program, well, is that an important goal to her? Does that make her day better? Um, does that make her more functional? Or does that simply actually take away from her true needs and goals and things that bring her fulfillment and stress her more and make her feel like more of a failure, that she can't do it or she can't find time for it? And It's not important to
2: her, right? No, I'm I'm excited about your approach. I, you know, we've been working together quite a bit, we're going to work together a lot more in the future. But, um, um, just do you have any final thoughts in general? We don't, we both know that the business of medicine has somewhat kidnapped us, we don't have time to spend with patients. I have multiple colleagues, not just a few, multiple colleagues who've actually. Lost their jobs because they weren't productive enough, and they actually were taking time to talk to the patients. Do you have any thoughts about how this paradigm of medicine can be changed for the average person?
0: Oh, it's it's a it's difficult a question. It's a difficult question because of the way um, the you know the the business of medicine and the reimbursement structure that we are um, working within in the United States drives a lot of the way medicine is practiced. And I, I liked your comment earlier that what we need to do is value different aspects of, of medicine. I mean, here we do, we do pay physicians and value them more in terms of the business aspect by the procedures that they do and the efficiency with which they um, you know, see patients and the number of patients that they're able to accommodate in their clinic and you know the outcomes data and things like that, uh, but I think we haven't really stopped to actually, in any recent time, do a comparison to see whether the outcomes are different with spending time with people and getting to know them. Right. And and so you know when we when we want to say is is this a good approach? Is this a valuable approach? Is there value? To say, um, for example, a procedural approach to medicine—you know, surgeries like you were doing, or you know, interventional procedures like we do in pain—well, what are we comparing it to? Are right. we doing anything really different that we're comparing it to, or are we just simply comparing it to writing prescriptions and and uh, you know, referrals for physical therapy and and that sort? But there's, but it's not spending time. So I'm I'm really in agreement. The thing that I found challenging in applying my coaching approach in traditional clinical medicine was that I couldn't take the amount of time. Right. If I, if I, you know, scheduled a person for 30 or 40 minutes, I still had to mandatorily go through this other checklist of other things that I had to address. And right. then really I wanted 40 minutes, but I had half of that or maybe, you know, even less than that. Right. And um, so they're, they neat. And the thing about coaching is, is that, It's like you don't you don't you don't have success with weight loss by seeing your doctor once every six months, right? Right. If I'm gonna help you, David, not saying that you need to lose weight, but let's hypothetically. I do a little, I do a little bit. If I was to help you lose weight, we'd be talking almost every day. Right. You know, or certainly several times a week, and I'd wanna know. You know, what are your struggles and, and oh, well, you know, Aunt Minnie has her 95th birthday party and we're going to have gobs of cake and ice cream. And how am I going to manage that? You know, a, a, I would be coaching you through how you look at life events, how you look at food, how you feel about it, what's salient to you, what's your relationships, you know, what's the meaningfulness, what's, you, you know, and and these are things that need to be done, not only um, for a longer period, but but frequently. And those are the things we just, we're just we not set up to do in medicine, no. the way it's structured.
2: Yeah, and it has to change. I mean, there's no question about it. Right now, there's a paper I just looked at, <clears throat> looked at the burden of chronic disease. It shows that 150 Americans have at least one chronic disease. 30% of those people have five or more chronic diseases, and they're almost all preventable. And so what's happening, we've been on an illness model, instead sort of a wellness model, and it's coming home to roost. We're just flat out chasing our tails. We're not solving the problems. And so, no, it's a huge problem. So, Jen, thank you again very much. I probably have you, I'm not probably, I will have you back on this podcast really to discuss nutrition in detail, which is a huge deal. And that's a big factor. And as a surgeon, of course, I've just sort of ignored that. But it's actually turning out to be just a really, really big deal. So thank you very, very much. This is wonderful. And uh, we'll talk to you soon.
0: Great. Thank you for having me, David. It's a privilege.
1: I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jen Souders, for being on the show today and for discussing the details of her approach to treating chronic pain based on a strong doctor-patient relationship, motivational interviewing, and patient self-determination. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com.